We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. Good morning, everyone. Um, before we get started, uh, I'd like to pray. Uh, thank you, worship team. If you would, bow your heads with me. Lord, we're grateful to be here together. We're grateful to worship you. Lord, we lift up the Hartzels and McKinley and Michael Leeper. We pray uh, for healing, Lord. And we pray that they'd know that we miss them here with us. And Lord, we pray that uh, today that I would fade away and that you would be on full display, that you would be glorified and that your word would go forth. It says that it will not return void. So I pray that today uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't do that, Lord. Your promise would be true. And we love you. Amen. Um, good morning, everybody. If you don't know who I am, my name is Josh Cousins. I am the youth pastor at the gathering. Um, as I'm sure you could have guessed, I'll be preaching through the Psalms of Ascent, like everybody else has. Um, I have Psalm 132, but before we jump in, I want to break down just kind of an overarching idea of the Psalms of Ascent. So as, as other people have mentioned, the Psalms of Ascent were Psalms that were repeated three times a year as the, uh, the Israelites would return to Jerusalem. For three holidays. The first one would be Passover, the next one would be Pentecost, and then the third one would be the Feast of Booths. Um, it's booths like in a restaurant. Um, and so there were three celebrations and they would just like repeat them as they would ascend the hill to Jerusalem. Uh, if, you, if you read all the way through the Psalms of Ascent, you would begin to see a pattern. There are 15 total and they can be broken up into uh, five different sections of three, okay? So starting at Psalm 120 to 122, that's one section, so on and so forth, all the way to the end. Um, the first one is said to be a psalm of trouble. The second one of the groups of three is said to be a psalm of trust. And the third one, a psalm of triumph. Um, so today, I have um, the opportunity to present to you the, the last psalm of trouble. It's an interesting one. Um, this, the ordering of Psalm 132 is specific in that it's almost kind of like a, a miniature version of the Psalms of Ascent. And that it, there really isn't too much trouble, but it contains trouble, trust, and ascent, or and triumph, all in one. So it makes it really interesting. Um, so as I read this, uh, as I read the verse, uh, I ask that you stand with me and open up to Psalm 132. Would you be listening for these three elements, the trouble, the trust, and the, ascent, or, and the triumph? All right, Psalm 132, the Lord has chosen Zion. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids 
until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them. Their, sh their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I dwell. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. You may be seated. So the name of my message today is Trouble, Trust, and Triumph. Um, just a quick breakdown. The first point is going to be the trouble. And, and what the, our reaction is to trouble should be prayer. Uh, and as we'll see, the psalmist, as well as David in the text, his, his first reaction is prayer. And that's verses 1 through 10. Uh, the second is trust, uh, verses 11 through 13. If you can tell, I've broken it out already in the elements, so you can pay attention as we go through. Um, and that's remembering his word. That's verses 11 through 12. And then the third point is the triumph. That's believing in his promises and worshiping him. And that's verses 14 through 18. The main emphasis of my message today is that God is faithful and prayer works. Though he doesn't need us, he loves to involve us in his work. Through our prayers, our trusting in him, by our, our obedience and triumphing with him as we worship him with our mouths and our lives. The psalmist here has laid out a good practice on how we're supposed to just handle life day to day, right? We, we run into troubles here and there. Uh, we're called to pray in these troubles. We're called to trust in the Lord, to know his word, and then to triumph in him. Um, so the first questions that we need to answer are in these first few verses. Where is God when David is losing sleep over building him a temple? And then why does David need to build him a temple anyway? Why does he want to build him a temple? So quickly, I'm going to try to uh, answer this. There's a lot of history in this text that, that provides a lot of context, so I want to lay it out real quick. We're going to fly overhead the books of First and Second Samuel, um, just picking out scenes here and there. Uh, so, so buckle up. So uh, I'm, I'm sure most of you have heard of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, if you haven't heard it from Scripture, you've probably heard it from an Indiana Jones movie. Um, this ark was a wooden box, and it was built with very specific, extremely specific measurements laid out by God, and it was covered in gold. Uh, no man could touch this box. If he touched it, he would die. So there were these big, like, wooden beams that would run through the rings on the sides of the ark, and they would carry it around that way. Um, the ark contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It contained a bowl of manna, and it contained uh, Aaron's uh, staff that budded. Right? So it was like a trophy case for the Israelites. But on top of that, it, it embodied the presence of God and the power of God. It was responsible for many uh, military victories for the Israelites. So, you know, obviously they took it everywhere they went. Um, but 
they begin to lose respect for what it was, what, that it wasn't the, the presence of God. It was more like a good luck charm. So every time they would go into battle, they'd make sure they had it, but they didn't revere it. They didn't respect it. And eventually, uh, they, they lost it to the Philistines. And um, the Philistines got it. They had it. And, and out of nowhere, the Philistines were, were blown away by all these different plagues. They began getting tumors. Rats started coming at them from everywhere, right? And so they knew, we got to return this. This is a problem. So they returned it to the nearest town, uh, nearest Israelite town, and that was called Kiriath-Jerim. Remember that, if you can pronounce it. Um, they returned it to Kiriath-Jerim, and it remained at this one place, Kiriath-Jerim, for 20 years, assumably because everyone at this point, even the Israelites, are afraid of this thing. They're just like, all right, we'll just keep it still. Um, in verses 1 through 10, uh, the psalmist is referring to this period after these 20 years. So... Philistines got it. They returned to sender, left it at Kiriath Jerem for 20 years. In verses 1 through 10, uh, it talks about how in this time as well, David had been, he'd been anointed king and he had been uh, chased by King Saul. There was a seven-year period where they were playing like hide-and-seek murder edition where Saul was chasing after David, just trying to take him out. So at this point, here we are, we're sitting and, and the psalmist is, is pointing out how, how Saul was chasing after him and he was going through all these difficulties. And, and when David finally becomes king after this 20-year this period this, and this also seven-year period within it, uh, I just imagine he's finally rested. He's finally the king, right? Saul has died. He's, he was defeated by the Philistines. And he's got his feet kicked up in his palace. And the wind is blowing through in an evening, right? And he's looking from left to right. He's scanning his kingdom. And he turns and he looks to the right. And the first thing he sees, the first thing he did was to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath's Yerim to, to Israel, to where he was. And he turns and looks, and there it is, sitting in his yard in a tent. I believe it's at this point that David starts shifting on his throne. Uh, he's troubled by this. And right away he gets to work. So... Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 again quickly. Uh, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to this dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So right there uh, in Ephrathah and the fields of Jar, in my studies, I realized that the fields of Jar is a reference for Kiriath Jerem. Uh, they can be used; they can be used in the same way. Um, this is referring to the fact that the ark remained there for twenty years. Um, so we, you, as David sat on the throne, and and noticed that the ark was sitting in his yard. And just kind of sitting there, almost being disrespected in a way as the Israelites had done. Um, I'm sure it was echoing in his mind the, the demise of King Saul. Because um, his disrespect for the Lord was the thing that, that turned God away from him. Though David was considered a man after God's own heart. He was human after all. So 
I'm going to jump into the demise of King Saul just to provide for you what might have been going through the mind of the psalmist as well as David. Um, there's this, there's this overarching, overarching fear that God would turn away from them. If, if David didn't honor the ark, God would turn away. If, um, and, and we don't quite know why, but the psalmist is fearing that for him and his people, the Lord is going to turn away. Um, the images of King Saul's demise had to be an echoing in the mind of David. Uh, worrying his fate may be the same. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul was ordered by God to destroy all of the Amalekites and their livestock by God. But Saul decided to spare the leader of the Amalekites and kept his livestock. When Samuel the priest asked him why he sinned in this way, Saul replied by saying that he did it in order to revere the Lord, to make a sacrifice to him. It's pretty much like saying you rob a bank to donate it to a church. God's reply in 1 Samuel 15, 23, through Samuel, is this. Because you saw have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. God ultimately says that he desires obedience over sacrifice and rejects Saul as king. Now, verses 6 through 7, as I said, are a reference to Kiriath-Jerim. Now, Ephrathah is a reference possibly to Bethlehem, which was located south in the same region southwest of Jerusalem. But this could be the author giving poetic mention to the covenant that was made through David who himself was born in Bethlehem. This verse begins the portion of the text where the psalm is stirring up history, as I said, talking about Kiriath-Jerim, bringing up the ark, talking about the history of King Saul, and, and why they might be afraid that the Lord would turn away from them, because they'd seen him turn away from Saul. Uh, he's reminding himself of past covenants and the, people, and the content, continuity of God's faithfulness, and he begins to move back into prayer in the midst of this trouble. He's praying for the Lord to come. He prays for him to clothe the, clothe the priests with righteousness and to not forget his chosen people in Zion. To sum up the trouble of this first section, um, in, the time of, of, in David's time, Israel was reckless, right, with the ark. Uh, whatever's going on in the psalmist's time, and, uh, and, he's, and he's calling back to David, he's almost using him as a representative for his people Israel and for him. Uh, they're fearful that the Lord is going to turn their back, turn his back on them. Now, David, at this point, is trying to make sure that he doesn't repeat the same mistakes as his first king of uh, as his first thing doing as king of Israel. The first way in which he does this is by prayer. He seeks counsel and begins preparations for a temple. David, as well as the psalmist, begins with prayer the moment they encounter trouble. They invite God into the trouble. We are called to invite God into our troubles. He is faithful to walk with us in our trials and our victories in life. That leads me to my point number two, the trust. Uh, Remembering God's word, this is verses 11 through 12. In verse 11, the psalmist begins the phase of trusting in God. You can see he returns to God's word, and he returns to the promises of God. It says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath. This is him speaking it out loud to himself. It is in this moment that the psalmist begins preaching the truth of God to himself. As believers, we're called to do the same thing. 
We're called to, when we, we face troubles and we, we go to the Lord in prayer, we're not meant to just sit there and leave our prayers left to go. We're supposed to remind ourselves of who God is, what he's done in the past, and, and who he will be in the future. Even if you aren't aiming to pastor a church, lead a small group, or a Bible study, everyone is called to love him with all our hearts, souls, mind, and strength, remembering him each day. Men especially are called to be the pastor of your own families. And we do this by immersing ourselves in the word each day so that we know the truth and we can prepare our hearts and minds for the battle ahead. Here he says that the Lord has swore to David and by extension David's people an oath, a covenant, a promise, and it says that he won't turn away from it. And we can put our faith in the fact that God is not going to turn away from the promises he's made. The writer then references Psalm 89, 3-4 to counteract his fear. He uses the word. It says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. He even moves further down in, verse, uh, in, in the verses ahead. He goes into a quoted promise from God. God is promising that David's descendants would rule on the throne. If you look, there's an interesting line in verse 12. It says, if they keep my covenant. Now, I don't know about you, but like David remembering the wrath of God on Saul and how he rejected Saul, it's often in the process of preaching to ourselves when we return to the word of God. When we return to his truths, we realize that we cannot uphold the word of God. Or we, we, can't, we can't uphold the covenant, and our own righteousness and good deeds cannot measure up. This reality is often referred to as the coming to an end of ourselves. And no matter the pain it causes, it is a gift of grace from God. It is this gift of grace that brings us to a place of repentance, that puts us in right standing with God. I encourage you all today to join me in coming to a place of repentance as it is a daily thing. We must do it in the same way we hopefully change our clothes daily. I had to put hopefully because I read it to my kids and they said, I don't change my clothes daily. Well, you should. Uh, so we will see in a moment that, that trusting, placing our faith and trust in Jesus and repentance is our only hope and solution. The best news we could hear today, and David could have heard then, is that when God spoke these words, if your sons keep my covenant and keep my testimonies, that they shall sit on the throne forever. When God wrote this, he did not write it as if it were dependent upon us. He didn't write it as if it were dependent upon David. And he didn't write it as if it were dependent upon Solomon. All our goods, good deeds and righteousness placed on a scale would never fulfill the covenant. He didn't answer the prayers of David, his people Israel, and the prayers we have today. Whether it be prayers for healing, hope, our marriages, our children, the state of our world, or more importantly, the state of our own hearts. David's prayer for a temple was honest, and I'm sure the Lord appreciated them. Eventually, the temple was built. His own son, through his own son Solomon, years later. But maybe like, like David, our prayers, our hopes, are set on things external. Things tangible, like a temple or, or like a new job. or I mean, who knows what it is? Things earthly. The problem we have here is that the temple David lost sleep over and prayed for, this earthly solution didn't and couldn't solve the problems of Israel. 
Just like carrying around the ark is a good look charm, couldn't help them either. Even after the temple was finally finished, it was later destroyed and the people of Israel were given into captivity under the Babylonians. It didn't end the troubles of Israel. It definitely didn't make a way for you and I to be free from our own sins or close the gap that they create between us and God. Ultimately, we have to be eternally minded, focused on the day we will dwell with Jesus, our hope and trouble, and the one in whom we put our trust in. His sacrifice, resurrection, and leading in our lives today. So at the beginning of this, this we, we see that David is wrestling and losing sleep over, over a temple that he feels he needs to build in order to honor God. Uh, I wonder if maybe he felt like that was just the next box he needed to check, right? Like he, he had to do it to honor God. Um, but comically, in, in historically in Samuel, when, when David goes to the prophet Nathan, and he asks him, he tells him, I gotta build, I've got to build God a house. Like, this is what i got to do. Um, God's response is, is pretty funny. He says in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 13, this is what God says to, says to David. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. To this day, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul. So what we're seeing in this psalm is, is this kind of fear uh, David and the psalmist are both fearful that the Lord is going to turn his back on them for whatever reason, either they're not being revered, the people of Israel are wandering again. Um, they have a track record of that. Um, but they're thinking back on how God turned his back on Psalm when Psalm wasn't obedient, when Psalm didn't revere God. But God is promising. He's, they have this fear at the beginning. That's the trouble, right? And then the trust their trusting in God comes when they begin to like look into the history, what God has done, what his word says, who he says he is. And I imagine that when, when he begins to preach to himself, he's thinking of this verse, that God says, I will build you a house, right? And there's, like in, there's a lot of prophecy happening here that we don't even know. But the interesting thing is that when it says the stripes of men, when I will discipline him, uh, obviously the term I will discipline him uh, with the stripes of men is echoing First Peter two twenty four. It says, "He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes you have been healed." It's completely echoed from Old Testament to New Testament. Obviously, when God says He commits iniquity, He's He's referencing Solomon, the son of David, not not necessarily Jesus, because He's never sinned. You can see the telescopic nature of God's promises from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The great mystery of biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation. We have a promised prophesied savior, a present shepherd, and a future king. God in subtle ways was talking about Solomon in Samuel when he promised David a house. But he was pointing to the perfect son, the ultimate eternal king in Christ. You can almost hear this verse as the drumbeat behind God's response to David. 
David says, I'm going to build you a house. Like, I got to honor you. And God says, you're kind of missing the mark. I have, there's much bigger plans. You can hear uh, Isaiah 55, 8, 9 is the drumbeat. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I want to encourage you all today to look to the Lord for your hopes and for your future. Not our own plans, but his plans. Not our own thoughts, but his thoughts. So when we do that, when we, when we drum up the truth of God, when we drum up his word in our hearts and in our minds, we'll begin to move into this phase of trusting. When we remind ourselves who he is, that he is faithful, that he has been faithful, and that he will be faithful, we'll, we will rest in that trust in Jesus. And as we, we stand in this trust, we begin to move into the triumph, which, which in this case is believing in the truth of God. We can remind ourselves every day of the word of God, right? We can remind ourselves who he's been in the past. But to put our belief, our full weight into this is the next step. And that's where we, we share in his victory. It's verses 13 through 18. This is my third point. Triumph. Believing in the truth of God. You can kind of see how in this text, it's broken out into three different sections, like I said. But it's almost like a call and an answer. So at the beginning, uh, there is a, a request from David, a request from the psalmist using David. Remember us, Lord. Remember you made a promise to David. Remember, don't leave us. And then he begins to use the word, oh, well, you know, he did promise to David. He did. He's faithful. He's reminding God of his faithfulness. And then the very last part, 13 through 18, is a response from God to the psalmist. It says that he has chosen Zion. He has chosen his resting place. He has chosen to dwell with us. This is reminiscent of um, of John first or John one thirteen through fourteen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the fa- uh, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says. It also says we, if you if you've read the New Testament that the primary name Jesus used to refer to himself as was the Son of Man. He was glad to be associated with us, and he chose it. He chose to dwell with us. Now, I mentioned John 1, 13 through 14, and ironically, I believe in light of what we've studied today, this proves God has a wonderful sense of humor. I would encourage you to look for it every day. Um, the Greek word used in John 1, 13 through 14 for dwelt among us is skanu. I don't even know that if that's how you pronounce it, but I've never heard it before. Skanu. If that isn't familiar to you either, let me tell you its meaning. Skanu literally means, this is dwelt among us, to pitch a tent. Exactly what God was doing in the yard of David some 900 years earlier. This time, not in a literal tent or a wooden box or a temple, but in human flesh. He would bear the stripes of man, as we read in 1 Samuel, and receive the full wrath of God, paying our debt and fulfilling the covenant. Earlier I mentioned how in Psalm 24, uh, David was aware that he couldn't fulfill this covenant. He couldn't fulfill the requirement. There's a real similar tension in the book of Revelation. It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. If you look at the end of Psalm 132, it says, uh, for the Lord has chosen Zion. And it says that there I will make a horn to sprout from David. And in Revelation, it says this root of David, right? Those can be used interchangeably. The anointed one who abundantly blesses, satisfies the poor with bread, as we see in verse 15, clothes the priest in salvation by his blood, and he is worthy to open the seals. He is the king who wears the shining crown, who is worthy to be praised. He is the answer to every trouble. He is the one in whom we trust, and it is his triumph that we get to share in today and forever as we worship him in eternity. Now, we no longer have to make sacrifices to receive forgiveness. He is the final sacrifice. We don't have to carry the ark and the weight of God around on two large beams. Jesus carried two large beams fashioned like a cross and bore the weight of God's wrath in our sins. It is finished, and he rose again triumphantly. Jesus says in John 14, 1 through 4, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have not told you that I would go to prepare a place for you? He is the son promised in 1 Samuel that will come and build a house for us. He is making a place for us right now. He is, and, and, and he's continuing to make a place for us, just like God promised David. As we wait for his return, we must stand firm, pray in our troubles, trust in his promises, and preach them to ourselves daily. We have triumphed in his death and resurrection, and we can, we can triumph in the presence of his Holy Spirit daily, and we will triumph in his return. So I just want to point out again, um, every single day we're running into different kinds of troubles, sickness, whatever it may be, and, and it's these troubles that the Lord has called us, that the psalmist is laying out for us, that we're to draw into prayer with the Lord the moment we come into these trials. And then we're meant to draw up the word and recall it, recall his faithfulness and who he's been and what his, who his word says he is and to preach to ourselves. And it is in that that we will be triumphed in the belief that we have in Christ and his return. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful um, that you are hope in trouble, that you are trustworthy, and that we triumph in your death and resurrection, and we will triumph in your return. And Lord, we just we lift up everything uh, that we, we brought here today, whatever it may be. We pray that, that it, would, it would rest in your hands and we would trust in your faithfulness to do what you will do. And we love you, Lord. Amen.